Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 388, a conversation with John Semper Jr. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 388. It's our conversation with John Semper Jr. Last month, actually a month and a bit ago, I had the, the tremendous opportunity to sit down and talk with John about his work, both in animation and his upcoming work in comics. Um, he's also well known uh, for being the, the head writer and story editor of the Spider-Man animated series from the 1990s, but he's also currently working on a new animated project called War of the Rocketmen, which we'll talk about in the episode, and which you can also fund or um, you can you know, donate towards uh, the funding project, and there's a lot of great perks that are involved as well. Uh, I've included the links in the show notes so that you can easily find out where to go, uh, or you'll listen to the episode and you'll have John tell you directly. Um, so he worked on Spider-Man, he worked, he has War of the Rockman coming up, and he's also going to be working for DC Comics this summer. Uh, he's launching a new cyborg ongoing as part of the Rebirth Initiative, which is very exciting as well. I wanted to thank some of our listeners of the show from the Marvel Masterworks Forum who contributed questions that were integrated into the interview. So I want to thank uh, Faust33, uh, Rob Ocelot, um, and a few others. Uh, I think... Uh, Jag2045. We didn't specifically answer your question, but it definitely kind of did end up answering part of it. Um, there was a lot to kind of go through and, uh, and have a big conversation, so we didn't get a chance to do through all, go through all the questions that were submitted, but thank you very much for submitting them, and thank you for those whose questions we did end up using in the episode. You can always email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, our next episode, episode 390, or next even-numbered episode, I should say, or non-reviews episode, uh, will be 390, which will be our spotlight on the new Ghostbusters movie. Episode 392 will be our spotlight on the new Star Trek Beyond movie. Uh, and then after that, I believe we'll have a conversation with Paul Jenkins, which I guess will be 394. 396 should be our spotlight on Suicide Squad. And then uh, from there, not really sure what's going to happen in 398 yet, but episode 400, I'm sure will be great because it'll be our 400th episode. Holy crap. I think when I started the podcast about four years ago, I don't think I ever thought I'd ever hit 400 episodes. Uh, or that I'd still be doing it four years later. So I'm very excited for that. But... That's not why you're here. You're not here to hear me prattle on about my show. You're here to have uh, John Semper Jr. talk about his career in animation, talk about Spider-Man in the Animated Series. I know that, that, that's what I was excited to talk about. So without further ado, we jump right into the conversation with John Semper Jr. Enjoy. John, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing this fine day? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Now, you're on the West Coast, so it's a little bit earlier. I mean, I'm on the East Coast. It's a beautiful, sunny day. I'm guessing it's a sunny day for you as well? It's always a sunny day in, <laughs> in sunny Southern California. We, we get tired of it, actually. We, we embrace the rain. So, yeah. What part of the East Coast are you in? Are you in? So, I'm in uh, Toronto, Ontario. So, I'm, I'm used to, you know, cold. I'm used to, uh, you know, all the seasons and all their various variety. Uh, but, oh, yeah. But predominantly a lot of cold during the winter. <laughs> I love Toronto. Toronto's beautiful. I was there many years ago. Uh, Jim Henson used to record all of his TV specials up there. And uh, we, my writing partner at the time, Cynthia Friedlove, and I got invited up for the, uh, the first Muppet Christmas special, uh, which is kind of a classic. And so my memory of Toronto is being surrounded by every Muppet ever created. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Uh-huh. Is that the one where they were at, um, uh, was it Fozzie's grandmother's house? Is that the one? Or is that yeah, one? I think so. I don't remember the plot very well because I only, I was there uh, for a couple of days and they were shooting bits and pieces. Uh, and I think I've only actually watched the finished special once many, many years ago, probably when it first aired. But it was it was the first one, and it was the one that literally every Muppet showed up. And at the time, I was doing the animated Fraggle Rock, and so I got to um, meet the uh, the puppeteers, the Fraggle Rock puppeteers, and, and uh, Cynthia and I got to actually manipulate one of the puppets. And it was really just a fun experience. And of course, Jim was there, and Frank Oz, all the all the major puppet operators were there. Uh, so it was a, it was a really historic event. Now, this is a really minor note, but it's because you bring it up, so it's interesting. Um, I don't know who he played. I think it might have just been a, a general puppeteer at the time. But my uncle was actually a puppeteer on Fraggle Rock. Really? Um, yeah. So he, I, again, I, I think he was just kind of miscellaneous characters. It was relatively early on in his puppeteering career before it kind of took off. Because he, uh-huh. he's, I mean... I don't have a lot of Canadian listeners, unfortunately, but um, for Canadian listeners, he was a big part of a lot of shows that were in children's programming in the 80s and early 90s uh, in Canada. Not so much in, outside of Canada, though. But What's was, his name? Uh, it was uh, Bob Stutt. Or, huh. or Robert, okay. Robert Stutt, but he goes by Bob. So It's entirely possible that I met him because if he was doing Fraggle Rock, he might have been a part of that special. Was, was he on that special? Do you know? Uh, I'm almost ashamed to say I don't know if he was actually on that one. I, I, I know a lot of the stuff I know him from is when he was more of a featured player. And again, as I said, on the more of the Canadian television shows. So I don't remember or haven't spoken to him as much about his Fraggle Rock experience. Okay. Well, if you ask him, you should ask him if he participated in that special. If he did, then I met him. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a cool connection. So let, let's let's go way way back. Let's. Uh, I usually like to ask people what their first kind of interaction with comics were. So let's let's start there. Well, I've been asked this question before, and the answer is I don't remember. Um, I do remember um, my mother buying me a Dennis the Menace comic book, uh, and those comics were always interesting because what what um, Hank Ketchum used to do, I assume it was Hank Ketchum, was that he would go and have vacations. Uh, in, in various interesting places and then he would write a Dennis the Menace comic book revolving around those vacations so you'd get to visit all these exotic locales and I remember this one particularly um, took place in uh, Hawaii um, and I, I loved that comic book it was a big annual you know so it was huge had a lot of pages and the story was very long and elaborate and I remember thinking that that was the coolest thing ever. So that's maybe my earliest memory of a comic book. But mostly I read DC. You know, I read Superman and I read Batman. And um, that was most of my memorable comic book reading, especially Superman. Um, and then when Marvel started, I was in high school when Marvel started. And I only really missed the whole round of first issues by just a month or two. It took me a month or two before I noticed these comic books on the newspaper stand. We didn't have comic book stores, and there was no mail order back in those days. Either you bought it on the newspaper stand or you didn't get it at all. Uh, there were no used comic book dealers, nothing like that. It was, it was you know, you, you caught it when it was out, and if you missed it, you missed it. So I missed the number one issues by maybe a, a few months before I realized that there was something interesting going on uh, up there in the uh, in the magazine rack um, 
these little kiosks used to be in the subways. By the time I figured out that something interesting was going on, um, that was it. I was hooked. And so it became Marvel after that. So I'd say everything prior to age 15 was uh, DC and, and funny comics, you know, Archie and Casper the Friendly Ghost and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then everything after that would be uh, uh, Marvel. Marvel was absolutely my favorite, and, uh, and Spider-Man was my favorite uh, comic book hero. Now, how did you get into writing professionally? Because obviously your, your road to Spider-Man takes a while uh, in, oh, yeah. in terms of uh, writing and, and doing the television shows. So how did, you, how did you kind of break into the animation industry, and, and how did you even decide that's what you wanted to do? Well, I knew that I wanted to be involved in cartoons since I was about six that was when I fell in love with Disney and was crazy about the uh, Disney movie um, Sleeping Beauty, which was just a, an amazing, it was the um, avatar of its day. You know, the fact that there was this widescreen cinematic um, uh, major animated motion picture. It was the first widescreen animated motion picture and it had stereo sound and it just blew me away as a kid. So from a very early age, I knew that I wanted to be in animation. Uh, and I'm very lucky because from that age, that's pretty much what I've geared my life toward, you know, being, toward doing. And it's exactly what I've ended up doing. So not very many people can make that statement. But um, more specifically, getting into how I got into the film business, um, it's a kind of a long and circuitous route. And I'll tell you the very short version of it, which is that I started out doing some TV stuff um, when I was in Boston, uh, when I was just out of college. And prior to that, I made a lot of little animated cartoons and stuff with my Super 8 camera. So, I, you know, again, the interest was always there. Um, and um, right out of college, I worked on a TV show called The Japanese Film, which was the first exposure that American audiences had to real Japanese movies as opposed to Godzilla um, and a friend of mine, uh, I went to Harvard, I graduated Harvard, I got my BA at Harvard. A friend of mine was driving cross country to uh, come out to LA and she asked me if I would go with her. And um, being a typic typically cowardly East Coast person, I said no. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know what, I really should. And so I came back to her the next day and I said, yeah, let's do it. So we drove cross country. She happened to be um, Akira Kurosawa's translator, oh, wow. um, and she knew a lot of really interesting people. Anyway, we got to the Bay Area. Uh, I ended up staying with another friend of mine that I, who I had gone to college with, um, and then my producer from the Japanese film series, which was a PBS series, uh, he found out that I was on the West Coast, and he said, well, come on down to, to um, L.A., because I'm about to do a, a study of the animation business for um, a uh, client. I'm working for an investment counseling firm, and I'm about to do a study of the animation business for a client. And I'd love to have you involved because I know you know all about animation, and you're, you know, I, I've written a few articles, I, I've, so I was a little bit of an animation historian. Um, and I said, great. So um, I came down literally within days of coming to L.A. I was on the Disney lot. We were talking to people at Disney. We were talking to Hanna-Barbera. Within about two days of arriving in L.A., we were interviewing Chuck Jones, you know, oh, wow. of Warner Brothers cartoons fame. Um, so, and, and that was interesting because basically 
his client wanted to buy an animation company, so we were walking in as people who could potentially buy the company or be responsible for the company being bought. So we got we got all kinds of wonderful attention, and I met the heads of all the animation studios. Um, so uh, we were invited to a recording session at Hanna Barbera, and it was a Flintstones recording session, and it was Henry Corden and Mel Blanc, and, you know Gene Vanderpile. I mean, you know the the classic uh, Flintstones cast. Um, so that happened, and then after that. Uh, that that job lasted about three months, and now I'm in LA, and I'm set up in LA, and I've got to go find a job. So, short version is, I ended up going back to uh, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who had a company called Ruby Spears, and I had just met them through the you know the interview with with the uh, previous gig. Um, and Ken Spears, bless his heart, he took a liking to me, and he set me up with an interview with his editorial department. And the long version of that story is. Um, that um, the head of the editorial department hated my guts is a guy named Dave Spencer or Dave Spence and he didn't like me one bit but the guy out in the hallway that I met on the way in he and I had chatted chatted a bit while I was waiting to go in for my interview and it turned out that he was the one taking over the department and, uh, and he liked me his name was Richard Allen and Richard liked me um, and again you know that so my actual interview was an informal chat I had with a friendly guy out in the hallway, uh, and he ended up uh, hiring me. He said, you know, he called me up afterwards. He said, uh, listen, um, I'm going to take over, I'm going to be taking over the department in about four weeks, and uh, I'd love to have you be involved. And so, um, you know, just give me a, give me a, a little while. And he called he did call me back, and he hired me, and he hired a whole bunch of really great young people. So we all ended up together in this building in Sun Valley working for Ruby Spears editorial and then when that gig ended um, and the funny thing is is the guy that I shared a room with who was hilarious his name was um, oh god how can I forget David's name anyway I can't think of his last name right at the moment Uh, but David uh, has ended up becoming a really great uh, director I see his name on TV all the time Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, that, that's that's sort of a little interesting aside. And for some odd reason, I can't remember David's last name, which is ridiculous, but at, at any rate. Um, so uh, after Ruby Spears, I went to Hanna-Barbera Editorial. And then from there, I met all the producers. I was working with all the producers in the building because in my particular job, I was... Uh, um, when all the animation would come back from overseas after being animated and had to be put together, I put it together and I would sync it up to the soundtrack, which had been sitting on a shelf for nine months waiting for the animation to be done. Uh, if you don't know this already, and you probably do, in animation we start with the soundtrack and everything emanates from that and the animation uh, is planned and then it goes off. All the planning materials go overseas, the animation comes back. And then uh, if, if you're lucky, some of the anima- animation might actually sync up with the original soundtrack. <laughs> My job was to, was to make it sync up, and, uh, and then I would call the producers up, and they'd come down, and they'd take a look at, at what it looked like, and we'd figure out how to fix things, because there were always mistakes. It actually always looked like crap. It, it used to amaze me that it would end up on the air. Oh, really? Because, yeah, so, so much of that Hanna-Barbera stuff, when it came back, it just looked awful. Um, Anyway, um, 
so that was a great opportunity to really just kind of learn the business from the ground up and get to meet all the producers. And all of those guys were guys who'd been in the business for decades. And they had done all the classic cartoons, Tom and Jerry cartoons. Everything I'd watched when I was a kid had been produced by all these guys in the building. Uh, so I learned a lot. And then I went off after uh, I got laid off from H&B. I went off to um, work on a TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not. So I was working with those people. And from there, I met an editor named Dave Blewett. And he liked me. And when he left Ripley's and went on to movies at Universal, he took me with him as an apprentice editor. And uh, my first real Hollywood credit because none of that earlier stuff earned me a credit. I didn't get credited for anything I did at Hanna-Barbera or Ruby Spears or um, or Ripley's. But my first Hollywood credit was on one of Dave's films, which was called DC Cab, which starred Mr. T and Gary Busey and a whole <laughs> bunch of people. Bill Maher, it was his one and, one and only movie before Religulous. Um and I met all those guys. That was fun. And it was Joel Schumacher, so I met Joel, and he's quite a character. And um, I worked on that film. And while I was working on that film, I had an opportunity to write with my partner, Cynthia Friedloeb, uh, to do sort of spec writing on cartoons. Um, because, you know, now, of course, I knew all these people at Hanna-Barbera. So even though I'm working in Universal on DC Cab... Um, I was uh, able to moonlight on in cartoon writing, and Cynthia and I sold so many cartoons that first season that Hanna Barbera said, "Well, wait a minute. Why don't Why don't we get this guy back here on staff? Because you know we have we have staff people that aren't selling as many cartoons to the network as you guys are." <laughs> so um, I left DC Cap before it was done and came over to H and B and started my writing career. Uh, I was at H and B for a few years. And then got brought over to a new company called Marvel Productions, which used to be the Patty Freeling. Um, and mostly, despite its exciting title uh, or the, the the exciting name of the company, it actually was just a an animation outlet for Hasbro. It, it did all of Hasbro's animated shows, so it was Transformers and GI Joe and My Little Pony. It also did Muppet Babies for Jim Henson, which is actually ultimately where I got my Jim Henson connection. Oh. Uh, yeah. So um, at Marvel Productions, uh, there was a guy in the back corner called, uh, his name was Stan Lee. <laughs> and I certainly knew who he was, so he and I became very good friends. I used to go hang out with him. And it was a very small building, and it was very small, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of animation company in a lot of ways um, it was doing a lot of work but it was small I think everybody pretty much knew everybody else and I certainly got a lot of face time with Stan I got to hang out with Stan quite a bit and that's how we became friends and um, yeah so that was that and then eventually after that uh, because then I, I did do Jim Henson's animated Fraggle Rock and Marvel Productions shut down just around the time that I was doing Fraggle Rock, and then I got a contract to um, uh, to do stuff for NBC production, so I was doing things for NBC. Um, yeah, so anyway, I guess that answers the question, which was how did I get into animation writing? It's not an easy path, and it's not. there's no way that it can be replicated, quite frankly. It's just its own strange little story, you know? Absolutely. Now, I have to ask, I mean... You've, you've been in animation, you've done a lot of animation. Uh, what was it like at first to kind of see how the sausage was made? Was it, uh, did it still kind of reaffirm your love of animation or did that, 
change or evolve? No. You know, the funny thing was I was pretty well-versed on how a cartoon was made because when you're interested in cartoons from age six, you, you, you know, you just kind of grab every book you can on the subject. And so I had a pretty good idea of how things were done. In terms of learning the Hanna-Barbera system from the editorial point of view, the big thing that, that I found out when I got to H&B as an editor was how much of it was a factory process. What Bill Hanna had basically created was this amazing factory process for making cartoons and so you know when you're down in the sound editing bay and um, you see rolls and rolls and rolls of the same cartoon sound effects that you've been listening to your entire life you know just one right after the other and so you see guys when they need that effect they grab that roll they spool it off they cut it in and it's it's all just factory you know and the music the same thing all the music cues are sitting on a shelf and you go get it off the shelf and it's the same music cue you've heard, you know, since Huckleberry Hound, and um, that was kind of interesting. Uh, the other part of it was how imperfect it could be and still end up on the air and just look like every other cartoon, every other TV cartoon you've ever seen. You know, sometimes I remember when I was at Ruby Spears before I got to H and B, we were doing a show called Plastic Man, which is a show that is of absolutely no value to anyone anymore whatsoever but at, at that particular moment it was a brand new network show so of course it was the most important thing on the planet um and um i you know look at that stuff on a moviola and think oh my god they're really in trouble here how are they ever going to make their air date two weeks from today when it looks this horrible and then two weeks i tune in on saturday morning and strangely enough even though it still looked just as bad it would look like every other cartoon on saturday morning somehow you know they'd cleaned it up enough and fancy it up enough and wow there it was it looked like cartoons so that was kind of interesting to discover that you didn't need to be perfect in order to be on the air or even be successful um which is which is kind of which has been my mantra ever since um, <laughs> you know as creators we can get really wrapped up in perfection you know oh it's got to be this and it's got to be that and the reality is you look at guys like Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera, and they made they built an empire out of stuff that was far from perfect. Um, or you know, filmation. Uh, I mean, a lot of that stuff really was pretty, pretty badly produced, and yet we look back on it fondly. And we, you know, now they're making multi-million-dollar movies. Pretty much every cartoon character I ever handled has ended up in a multi-million-dollar motion picture in the last ten years. Scooby-Doo, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Smurfs. Um, and these things came across my moviola uh, in their far less than perfect form. And somehow they have ended up being major, major properties. So that was kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was, you know, and it wasn't disillusioning. Um, the most disillusioning part of animation, and I don't want to stress it because it's not like I've had a horrible time or anything. I re I've actually had a wonderful time in animation. But I think the thing that I had to get used to is the thing that everybody has to get used to when they work out here, which is that it's a business and um, it's not always the, the most savory business on the planet. Um, and... You know, you, you, you would look at, I would look at all those, as a kid, I would watch all those old, old Walt Disney shows and, 
you know, Walt would come in and the animators would all be working away happily and then he'd leave the room and then they'd pull out their trombones and kazoos and <laughs> drums and, you know, play a song because they were just so happy to be there and having so much fun. And the reality was you didn't have a whole lot of fun in most animation companies. You know, most most of <laughs> most of what you end up dealing with are politics and politics can be very backstabbing and, and Machiavellian and and um, uh, I always say that when I did Spider-Man, 80% of my day was spent dealing with the politics of the situation. 20% was spent dealing with creative issues. But it's the politics that enable you to do the other stuff. You know, if you don't, if you can't maneuver through all the cutthroat politics, then you don't get to do, you don't get to do the fun stuff. So um, there's a lot of fun stuff, but I had to get used to, um, you know, definitely had to get used to the politics and and all of that kind of stuff. So, but again, you know, it's not disillusioning. It's just life. It's just reality. You grow up. You learn how life works. You learn how people are, and you adjust. So I've adjusted pretty effectively, and and uh, I've been able to produce some pretty good work. I had a, a listener question. They wanted to know if there was any behind the scenes stories you could tell about working on the Smurfs. Um. Yeah. Are we live? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when you say you have a listener question, how does that happen? Well, sorry, not a listener question. Well, I, I mean, a listener of my show. Of um, your show. Okay. They had known that uh, this interview was coming up, so I had some people submit questions that they would love to ask. Oh, wonderful. Okay, that's great. Um, Smurfs. What was it like working on Smurfs? Yeah. Uh, it, it was great. I mean, I was there. I handled the pilot. I edited on the pilot. Okay, so... When the pilot came back from overseas, I was in the editorial department. I was the person that sunk it up, that you know, got it in sync with its soundtrack, and I sat down with its rather brilliant um, uh, producer and director Gerard Baldwin, um, who, by the way, I think Gerard has written a book about his experiences at Hanna Barbera. I'm sure he doesn't mention me. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug the book anyway. It's a pretty good book. I've got it on my shelf. Um, so uh, I was there, you know, I sat with Gerard when he got his first look at the Smurfs. Um, and we, we worked on the pilot. Um, I There were some scenes that had to be reshot. Part of what I did was I'd sit with the producer and we'd figure out what we could fix in editing which was really crucial to the Hanna-Barbera system because that cost them nothing. But, you know, sometimes things actually had to be redone. Those are those were called retakes, and uh, those would have to be ordered up, and obviously they took time, so that was an expensive proposition, both in terms of time and in terms of money. Um, I sat with Gerard, and we marked retakes, and then um, we would also sit with the checkers. These were usually women not always, but usually, who were over in the animation department. Um, And I should mention that, too. The great thing about being at Hanna-Barbera in those years, and that would be the early 80s, was that um, you could watch a cartoon being made from beginning to end. There was a certain percentage of animation that was kept in, in, in the building and in America. Very small percentage. Most of it was done overseas, but... A little bit of it was done in the building. So you could go from department to department and watch the process 
of animation being made. And that, to me, was the most fun of being at Hanna-Barbera. So when I got to be a writer and I wrote a cartoon, I could go to the, the background department and watch them painting the backgrounds for that cartoon. I could watch the animators animating that cartoon. I could watch the layout people, you know, laying the cartoon out. And you could go through the entire process, not to mention the recording studio and actually going to the recording. Um, so, so having said that, I knew um, all the checkers, because they were all women who worked over in the ink and paint side of things, and they would come over, and when we would call for retakes, they would shuffle through all the artwork and figure out what went wrong and mark, you know, where things needed to be fixed. And then I would go over and visit them, and so there, there might be a stack of animation cell sheets that were all now useless because they were going to be redone. And I actually have an animation cell of Smurfette when she was evil, before she turned good. Oh. Because there was a, a sequence that needed to be redone, and it included that cell. Um, and so I have, a, you know, an actual animation, production animation cell of Smurfette with her dark hair um, before she became blonde and, and therefore turned good. Uh, not too many weird sociological messages <laughs> sent there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I also have, there was a scene I remember where Azriel, the cat, uh, his tail caught on fire and, and the network said, no, we can't do that. So that scene got eliminated. I got a sell from that scene. So, um, you know, I, I was really right in the middle of the whole Smurfs thing. And then later, when I came back as a writer, you know, a year or two later, uh, I wrote a few Smurfs. Cynthia and I wrote a few Smurfs, um, including one of my favorite cartoons, which was Smurfette Sweet Tooth, where, which was basically the King Midas story with Smurfette turning everything into candy instead of gold. <laughs> Um, that's one of my favorite things that I wrote at Hanna-Barbera because it actually came out exactly the way I wrote it and uh, and I was really happy with that and um, uh, yeah, so it was great it was a great time to be at Hanna-Barbera I mean, they were, they did all the really important animation that was happening in America on American television right at that time uh, and it was a great time to be there it was a great time to be in the animation business and the cool thing about the building was all those old guys shuffling around the building had done everything. They had done Mickey Mouse cartoons, and they had worked on Disney features, and they were famous. Quite a few of them were famous. I mean, I ended up working with Frizz Freeling because yeah. he came over to um, to do a thing called the Pink Panther, the Rainbow Panthers, which was the Pink Panther and his sons, and each one of the sons was a different color. So um, I wrote a couple of those, and so I actually got to work with Frizz Freeling. You know, I've, the, the animation history was still alive and well and walking around in 1981, 82. So I got to know, I, one of my mentors was Walter Lance, who had created Woody Woodpecker. Um, I knew Walter really well. Uh, Alex Lovey was over at Hanna-Barbera. He drew the original Woody Woodpecker. Um, you know, uh, guys like Art Babbitt were in the building. Art had been one of the, uh, uh, I believe, the animator of, of Goofy. Um, I remember w one day I was in my office, and I had a Disney calendar, and the calendar had uh, pictures of um, drawings from Walt Disney Animated Features. And one of them, that particular month, was a drawing of, 
Mickey, Donald, and Goofy from the from the short Clock Cleaners, which is a really classic Mickey, Donald, and Goofy short of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And uh, this old guy, Chuck Couch, came shuffling into my office. And Chuck, Chuck, some, Chuck looked like death warmed over, <laughs> but he came shuffling into my office, and he had never had two words to say to me, so it's not like we were good buddies or anything. And I thought, what the hell is Chuck coming into my office for? And he walks over... And he, he, he basically looks past me to the wall, and he looks at this drawing, and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and then he turns around and shuffles out. I, that was the world in which I was living back in those days. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So let's talk Spider-Man. Okay. So, how, I mean, how did you, I, I've heard it part of the story in other interviews etc but for our listeners who haven't heard those and they should seek out other interviews with you as well um, how did you kind of become involved with the Spider-Man animated series uh, in the early 90s well um, it came through my friendship with Stan Stan and I had been friends for a good while so if I met Stan in roughly 1983 we had been friends for about 10 years um, and I had been at one of Stan's Christmas parties where Jim Cameron was there, Margaret Lesh, who had been my boss at Hanna-Barbera and my boss at at, uh, Marvel Productions, and she had gone on to head Fox Kids Animation. Uh, So Margaret was there, Cameron was there, Stan, of course, was there, it being his party, and somehow everybody got excited to be in everyone else's company, as is the case at Hollywood parties, which I normally do not really attend, but I happen to be at this one. And everyone was very excited to have Jim Cameron in the room. Um, and so somehow every, suddenly things got all buzzy. And at that time, Jim was going to do the Spider-Man animated movie, and I guess Margaret was chatting him up, and Stan was there. And right at that moment, they all decided, well, let's do a Spider-Man cartoon show. So I literally was there when the show was born. And um, Margaret made some incredibly generous comment like, and we could get really great talent to write it. And she gestured toward me. And I thought, boy, you must be drunk. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, that was a very generous uh, comment. and, uh, And I was very appreciative. Um, but of course, when it came time, you know, a year later to actually figure out who was going to write this show, I was absolutely not in consideration. And they brought over someone from another show who had been uh, an Emmy winner and was very talented. Um, and, um, I got a call. I was sitting in, in the backyard of a producer named Sonia Rosario in Venice California, and we were plotting out stories for a show that I was on at the time called Puzzle Place. It was a PBS show that has been completely forgotten, probably rightfully so. Um, The only memorable thing about Puzzle Place was all the puppets were designed by Kevin Clash, who went on to great fame as Elmo. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, Puzzle Puzzle Place was being done by a company called Lancet Media, uh, and they they had gain popularity uh, through reading Rainbow. Anyway, I'm working on Puzzle Place. And um, I pick up a variety that was lying in Sonia's backyard, and it said, Spider-Man animated show, and you know, going into production, and it listed all the creatives involved. 
And uh, I thought, wouldn't it be great if this particular showrunner didn't work out and I got a call from Stan? <laughs> and he said, you know, only you're the guy that can do this. And then after that little daydream, I continued working on, on uh, Puzzle Place. We continued working. Well, sure enough, about four days later, five days later, maybe a week later, I get a call from Stan Lee. And he says, we're trying to make a deal with this guy, and we're having a little bit of trouble, and I'd like to throw your name into the ring. And I said, great. This was like literally I had wished it, and it had come true. <laughs> um, then I got a call a week later from Stan, and he went, John, I'm really sorry to have gotten you you know, excited, but we made the deal, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I said, that's okay, Stan. It's all right. It doesn't matter. I'm working anyway. I got a show I'm working on which I wasn't enjoying at all. Um, and um, then a whole bunch of months went by. This is the thing about this business that you all, you have to be mindful of. Nothing happens quickly. But because it doesn't happen quickly doesn't mean it's, it's it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, okay? Um, things can still happen. So months went by. I'm going to say six months. I don't remember, but a long time went by. And I got a call out of the clear blue from Stan. And he says, John, it's not working out. Um, there are some problems. And so we're replacing the showrunner. And, I, and I'm just, this time I'm just telling them I want you. Bless his heart. I love that man. <laughs> um, so I'm, Great. Well, what I didn't realize was that, first of all, that showrunner was probably absolutely 100% fine. There was nothing wrong with that showrunner. What was going on was that there were some really wicked politics going on on that show. Um, and basically, there were, there were two things, two factions going on. One was... There was someone who was trying to seize control of something that would end up being called Marvel Films Animation, which was a company that was formed to create animated Marvel properties. And Spider-Man was its very first show. So there was a little bit of power struggle going there. And then the other thing was, I think the network had gotten, and quite rightly, the network had gotten so fed up with all the bullshit, if you'll pardon my expression, that they wanted they didn't want to do the show anymore. They just didn't want the show to, to exist anymore. So part of the reason that I, I think I received so little resistance when I got brought over was that everybody just sort of thought it was a sinking ship. And, you know, they were okay with me going down with the ship. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think the network at that particular moment, I, certainly the network guy that I was dealing with, he was no fan of mine. Um, to this day, you know, he, he, he has very little interest in, in me. Um, and, and we'll go at great lengths to, to uh, let people know that. Um, but I think that the idea of me going down with a sinking ship was very, very, uh, um, you know, uh, worthwhile to him. Um, so that was okay. So really, I, you know, I was brought over and I, I encountered, surprisingly encountered no resistance. Um, and I met Avi, and Avi at that point, Avi was a little frantic and angry, I think, that, that so much time had been wasted. So he was in a mood, um, and there was all this politicking going on. Anyway, um, to make a long story short, I got a show out the door in the midst of all of this confusion. I got, a, I got Night of the Lizard out the door. 
and um, that just happened because I, I actually, even though I look kind of stupid, I actually know what I'm doing, uh, and um, I chose, I, I recently wrote, wrote about this on Facebook, one of the reasons why I chose Night of the Lizard was that it was a Stan story, it was a standalone story that Stan had done in the comic books, so nobody could argue it. You know, people couldn't go, oh, that story is awful and it's just terrible. Well, you couldn't argue that because you got Stan there and it's his story. Um, all I was doing was embellishing it. And then I very wisely hired Jerry Conway, who's a wonderful guy, talented writer. He was working on uh, Diagnosis Murder or Prescription Murder or whatever the, whatever that show was called, the Dick Van Dyke show. Mm -hmm. And he very generously came over because he certainly didn't need to and he didn't need the aggravation and he didn't need the money. He just came over because I, I, I begged him. I said, please come over. So, you know, I got Stan Lee in the room and I got Jerry Conway in the room. Nobody's going to say, well, you guys don't know Spider-Man. So, you know, that's me being clever. That's me being political, okay? Um did I have a whole lot to do with that story? Of course I did. Uh, I remember dictating some stuff to Jerry, and he was like, I don't think all this stuff is going to fit in here. <laughs> just, <laughs> just do it. The whole Eddie Brock thing, I, I, you know, I put that in because I thought, well, if I actually managed to survive on this show, I'd like to build up the Venom. Um, so let's put Eddie Brock in. And I remember Jerry saying, I don't know if there's enough room for that. But I said, no, no, just put it in anyway. Um but, you know, at, at least w when we're in the room doing read-throughs and everything, Stan's there. It's a Stanley story. I got Jerry Conway, who arguably is, you know, the second greatest writer of, of Spider-Man. And who can argue with that? So somehow I got all the political stuff to calm down. Um, although I had one guy in a prominent position who made it his job to try to get me fired. That's another whole story. But I was able to kind of push that to one side. The big deadline that was looming on Spider-Man was that if we didn't get a pilot out the door by a certain date, then there wouldn't be a show on the air nine months later, um, and then Avi wouldn't be able to roll out the Spider-Man toy line for Christmas. So um, all this arguing had to stop if there was going if there was going to be a show on the air and I so I had that working in my favor and I knew that so there could only be so much screwing around um, I think what my predecessor the problem he had was that there was too much time so there was plenty of time for him to be um, basically undermined and and nobody had their eye on, on the deadline. By the time I got on the show, everybody suddenly realized, oh my God, there's a deadline. The funny thing about these shows is you end, the people you end up arguing and fighting with the most are the ones that are going to benefit from you doing your job and doing your job well. <laughs> and sometimes you just scratch your head and you go, do you realize that I'm trying to provide a product for you? Because I'm on salary here, dude. I'm, I'm, all I'm going to get is a salary out of this. It's your toy line. It's your show. It's your network. Why, you know, why are you making it so hard for the show to get done? Why are you cutting off your noses to spite your faces? It's just the weirdest phenomenon. So the people you end up fighting with the most end up being the people who are going to benefit the most from you getting the job done. It's, it's, bizarre it's a bizarre wacky kind of logic uh so anyway i got a show out the door i'll tell you this is how whack, wacky it gets the day that we aired the pilot and we used to show every pilot 
on the air. Uh, I'm sorry, on the big screen in the New World building. So we, every every um, not every pilot, every new episode we got in, we watched as a movie, basically, which was great. That's awesome. So after the pilot, Night of the Lizard, you know, is on the screen, big screen. And it's like it's like watching a mini movie, and we're all excited, and we we're, we're just thrilled to death. Abby thanked everyone in the room except me. <laughs> <laughs> and he did that deliberately. It was like it was like for getting a pilot out the door on time, I was now his dread enemy. Now figure that logic out. Um, but that's how stupid it got. Um, so, you know, part of my attitude there was shaped by my early experiences, which was, um, you know, basically most of those people gave me a giant F you. Um, and so I kind of felt like, well, I'm just going to do what I want. Uh, you know, so a lot of, a lot of the, the way that the show went was me doing what I wanted and going running counter to a lot of what I was asked to do. Um, and that's and you know and and there's still a little bit of my attitude whenever I discuss Spider-Man, uh, and I'm sure people pick up on it. But you know that it, it, the politics of this, I could act all happy and everything and say, oh, we were one great big family and had a wonderful time. But that really isn't how it went, and that would that would kind of be dishonest of me to say that. Uh, we have some uh, a few listener questions uh, around this kind of era. Uh, well, one of them was, uh, what was the most outrageous demand from standards and practices that wasn't related to harming pigeons? Well, okay, let's get to my other, my other <laughs> favorite soapbox that I get on. Um, that harming pigeons thing was one note that I got that I, that I separated from all the rest. Uh, and I used to do a little routine. You know, I, I'm not an actor. I'm not a performer. So when I would go to these comic conventions like the San Diego Comic-Con and everything, I, I think to myself, well, what can I do that will be entertaining? And then one day I thought, hey, you know what? So sometimes every tenth note that we get from BS&P, if taken out of context, can actually be made to sound ridiculous and funny. So I'll, I'll take about 11 of these things and I'll do a little comedy routine, okay? Well, what I didn't understand was that, first of all, most of the people out there in the real world didn't ever even realize that we had any kind of broadcast standards and practices at all. You know, everyone thinks that you get the Spider-Man show, you get to do whatever you want, or you get any cartoon show, you get to do whatever you want, which is probably true these days because things, you know, now everything's on cable. But um, back in those days, you know, every cartoon show had broadcast standards and practices limitations. Uh, I'd been working in the business for 10 years, so to me they were second nature. You know, there are certain things you can't do, and it applies to every show, not not just mine. But I'm the idiot who went out and read these, and I think for a lot of people, they got the joke, but then a, a whole other bunch of people said, wow, Spider-Man has censorship. And this just became part of the legend of the show is that we had this bone crushing. And then you get idiots like that, you know, that, that moron who does the uh, nostalgic critic stuff. And, you know, because those are people who in their real lives are accountants and garbage collectors and stuff like that. And then they decide that they're now going to criticize things, which I think is ridiculous. Um, that's the stuff that they lean on. You know, they go, oh, well, there was a lot of censorship, and a whole lot of censorship on that show, and I'm the expert, because even though during my daytime gig I'm, I don't have anything to do creative, I'm now going to be an expert and talk about what, what goes on behind the scenes of a show that I had nothing to do with. So, um, 
and if I sound a bit angry about this, I am because um, I, I really think that that kind of mythologizing and creating a legend based on falsehood is is really annoying. Uh, the reality is we didn't have a lot of censorship on Spider-Man. <clears throat> we, uh, we, we didn't have any more than any other TV show. Um, the whole legend, the whole this whole mythology, this whole rumor that Spider-Man had a lot of censorship is just absolute utter foolishness. Um, and I don't even really remember the notes. What I do remember was that I had a really excellent relationship with the uh, with the um, broadcast standards and, and practices woman, whose name I believe was Avery Evans or something of that sort. Um, she was very nice. She would call me up and say, you know, there are a couple of things I don't want you to do, blah, blah, blah. I'd say, okay, fine. Um, because I'm not really that confrontational. And honestly, you do have to keep in mind that you're making this product for kids. You know, um, I'm a little more, despite my comment earlier when you were t- telling me about your wife being a little bit sensitive to what your child sees, uh, and I'm sure you are too. Um, you know, I, I take that seriously. I think that, that uh, you, you can't, you can't be putting things in front of kids at a very formative age that they don't really need to see. A lot of people get upset with the show because Spider-Man didn't hit people a whole lot. Well, the reality is I personally don't believe in modeling conflict resolution in front of young minds that revolves around physically striking someone. So if you've got a character that can web someone up, which is much more fun and isn't imitatable, then do that instead of having him sock someone in the jaw. Um, so, you know, this this uh, probably Spider-Man had more censorship from me than anyone else, but I never argued anything. I never really argued with the uh, BS&P person at all, and I probably could have. Um, I You know, some of the mythology is ridiculous. You know, it says we, we never did death. Well, actually we did. You know, we killed off the... Uh, the water-based Mary Jane Watson, and and every kid in America that watched the show was somewhat traumatized by that. But we did it. Um, the other myth is we didn't ever use real guns; we only used the laser rifles. Well, the reality is, I did a whole episode about Randy Robertson getting a hold of a gun. You know, Robbie Robertson's son getting a hold of a gun, and I called uh, Avery up and I said, hey, "I'm going to do an episode about a gun," and she said, "Well, okay, you know, let's." Let's approach this carefully, and the gun looked like a real gun and everything, and um, uh, it was a big deal. Um, so we did do that stuff. It's just that the myth is that we didn't do it, and, and actually I'm really kind of tired of the myth. And I'm tired, I do get angry with this whole idea of people getting on the Internet and taking very little information and using it for their own purposes Um you know, I mean, there's real information out there. I don't know. I don't know why people have to just sort of keep regurgitating. You know, I like podcasts like this where you will talk to a creator like myself and say, "Well, what's the truth?" But you know, idiots like the nostalgia moron or whatever he calls himself—that stuff just drives me crazy. You know, I I wear a funny hat and I have a funny voice, and so I'm now an internet star. Well, that's ridiculous. So anyway. Fair enough. Um, from the same listener, they asked the question of uh, 
Do you think that a fully realized vampiric Morbius could have been done on children's TV in the 90s, or was the version we saw the best possible compromise? The version you saw was the best possible compromise. There's no way in hell. First of all, you can't show blood on Saturday morning at all. You know, if you can name a 90s Saturday morning show that showed blood, I will I will personally uh, um, uh, take you to dinner. Um, but, you know, people... Listen, here was the game on Saturday morning. You tried to get away with whatever you could. You tried to slip things past whenever you could. That's what most of these shows played, and I think Batman probably did it best because they got a lot of stuff past the censor. But, um, you know, I wasn't terribly interested in doing that. Um, Morbius was a vampire, but Morbius was a genetic vampire. He had been genetically altered, so he was really a vampire only in name, uh, uh, only I was able to work him into the series through the whole neogenic recombinator angle, which was a scientific thing. It's the same thing that made Spider-Man become a six-armed Spider-Man. Uh, I was able to use that as a thread that tied it all together. So he wasn't really a vampire. You know, the funny thing, the great compliment that people pay the show, um, those who like it, uh, and I acknowledge that not everyone likes it, but those who like it say it was just like the comic book. Well, in, in point of fact, it was really not just like the comic book, but it felt just like the comic book. And a case in point is uh, Morbius. When I, I knew that I wanted to use Morbius, but when I went back into the old issues and discovered his origin, you know, it was just one day he was in a cave and he woke up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, literally, you know, the story starts and Peter's involved in some kind of a soap opera thing and then it cuts to a cave near the beach and you know the next panel is a vampire and he's in there and he wakes up and he goes hey I'm awake I think I'll do some vampire stuff and that's the origin of Morbius and I thought well that's stupid we can't do that so um, I want to use the character I will give him an actual origin point which was through the whole neogenic recombinator and then that really opened the door for him to do it differently you know I mean I think it's creepier that he could put his hands on you it's kind of borrowed from the salt creature in, in the uh, in that episode the very first aired episode of Star Trek mm. was the salt creature who could suck the salt out of your body with it with her you know her tendrils and I thought, well, that'll be pretty creepy, and it'll achieve the same result. And we can still call him a vampire because he, you know, he needs plasma instead of specifically saying blood. Um, and uh, and then people point to that and they go, well, that's censorship. Bleh. No, it's 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 using our heads and doing something better. You know, I actually think it's better. You know, people are so funny about adhering to the comics like the comics are some kind of holy writ um, first of all most comics a lot of comics not most but a lot of comics are really badly written even back in the classic era they're just you know from a from a purely storytelling point of view there's some really wonky stuff that goes on in there and you really have to make it better um, somebody asked me the other day and I'm afraid that my response was a bit inelegant because I'm tired of answering the question. It was like, why did you make it Insidious 6 instead of Sinister 6? Well, usually I explain that. I say, well, because Sandman wasn't there, so technically it wasn't the Sinister 6. And if I had called them the Sinister 6, then everybody these days would be saying, yeah, but Sandman wasn't there, so you suck. But the, rea <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the reality always something. is... Pardon? It's always something. It's always something. 
you know, the reality is, I, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, well, in response to to what this person asked me this time around, I said, "Does it really matter? What what is? Why does it matter?" And and people get very connected. They get very. It's like it has to be the Sinister Six, man, or else no, I don't know. I'm going to cry. Well, that's ridiculous. You know. Um, I don't understand that. I honestly don't understand. Some people forget that these are creations. These are made-up worlds. They're not real. This isn't real history. I wish people got as worked up about real history and real things going on as they do about fantasy things. Uh, I, I had an exchange with someone on the Internet about George Lucas. I hate George Lucas. I, how can you hate George Lucas? What does that mean, you hate George Lucas? Well, I found out that when he created this... He had something in mind, but then later on he changed his mind and he made it something else. And I, I hate that. Well, it's it's his thing to do. That's what creators do: is they create things, they change their minds. Who cares who shot first in in Han Solo and you know and and the table and I, it's just it's all made up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing real about it, and um, uh, you know this guy who who with the Captain America thing and he's getting death threats <laughs> I, honestly I don't understand it it's it's just if you're not simply regarding it as fun entertainment then you're really missing the boat on some level so anyway yeah I, I have to say like uh, with regards to like the Captain America thing when that was kind of blowing up this week I, I, I don't get why it matters like it's the middle of us first of all it's the beginning of a story it's going to end somewhere it's right. it's doesn't it doesn't I don't know I, I don't understand why people are so up in arms about it because who yeah. cares it's a story and it's probably going to end up being you know not what you think it is and but that's part of the story you're you're reading the first chapter you can't read the first chapter and be like well this is stupid and just there's there's like tw- there could be like 20 more chapters before that story is over how can you make such a value judgment based on a cliffhanger that's meant to make you want to come back and read more and find out why Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, I do understand a little bit of the furor. I don't understand death threats. Um, I do understand a little bit of the furor uh, in that I myself am tired of of, um, gimmicks that are designed to sell comics. This is something that that bothered me even as far back as when we were doing the Spider-Man show. When we were doing the Spider-Man show, Marvel was basically, Marvel publishing was kind of falling apart. And it was falling apart largely because of really bad writing, I think, in the comic books. And that was when they were doing the uh, the Ben Riley and the Clone Saga, and everybody was sort of either, either loving that or hating that. And um, they were killing off Aunt May, and you know all this all this stuff that 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 um, I think traditionally the problem with comic books, <laughs> and there's no solution, is that. Sometimes comic books are written by really good writers, and sometimes comic books are written by really bad writers. But no matter what, it becomes part of the official history. So even though Morbius's origin point was, hey, I'm in a cave and I woke up and now I'm going to go out and be a vampire, that's the official lore. And there's always going to be somebody out there that's going to get really worked up if you deviate from that at all. Um, and... I think that one of the one of the things that, that bothers me is bad writing. So you know, if you've got 
if you've got a comic book title and, and it momentarily gets written by a bad writer, um, then you're kind of stuck with all that garbage that he created. And it, it pollutes the, the creative atmosphere for the rest of us. Um, you know, for, for those of us who come along and then have to, have to, you know, carry on from that, from that, that point. And, um, you know, and I think the readers have that problem too. I think they kind of look at this and they go, oh, well now I'm, whatever the hell this is, I'm now saddled with it, you know. Because uh, it's now this is the part of the official lore, and, and I mean I, I have to admit it really kind of pissed me off in the uh, in the new Star Trek movies when they blew up Vulcan. Mm. It just pissed me off. You know, it's it, I, I'm not going to send J.J. Abrams a death threat, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I do because I'm sane is I say I guess I'm just going to ignore this. Okay, so you know they've got this new timeline going. And I'm just mostly going to ignore it until it proves itself superior to what I already love. Okay, that's how a sane person handles it. I think a not-so-sane person or, or a rabid fan handles it like, ah, oh, they ruined it, you know, I, my whole life is ruined because of this. And I think that that's a little bit of, of what's, uh, what's going on there. Um, but, you know, this gimmicky writing, I, I, I'm not a fan of. Um, when they did it with the clone saga and I, I wrote a, an episode called I Really, Really Hate Clones and that was my <laughs> statement about the clone saga was I really, really hate that you've done this and I really, really hate but you know I was the first person to get to reinvent the Spider-Man storyline in the series um, in a way that was still somewhat you know uh, true to the comic book and then a lot, I think a lot of people have come after me in the comic books and have, you know, borrowed the ideas from the animated series um, that that they're still doing. I mean, they did the uh, Spider-Verse again recently. And, you know, I, I was the first person to do the Spider-Verse. I created the Spider-Verse. Um, I was the first person to, to have Spider-Man save all of reality and get together with other versions of himself. Um, you know, so... It, it, Everything gets cannibalized. I like to think that I strengthened the Spider-Man universe by doing stuff like that, um, which I think is what you should do as a, as a good writer. You should bring something good to the table. And I think people are maybe just a little concerned that what's been brought to the table with this Spider-Man twist, with this uh, Captain America twist, is maybe not such a good thing. So, there you go. Fair enough. Um, I, I, another listener question was, because uh, you mentioned Sandman before, um, what was the issue with using Sandman in in the TV series? Because he was one of the few notable villains that kind of was omitted. Yeah, I answer this question a lot. I was simply told not to. Jim Cameron was going to use him in his movie. Uh, I was not privy to reading the Jim Cameron outline. I take great joy in the fact that it's now online for any Tom, Dick, and Harry to read if they feel like it. Because back in the day... Was sort of like, oh my God, you're not important enough to read that. Uh, but all that I was told was, uh, uh, he's going to use Sandman, he's going to use Electro. Um, don't use those two villains. And so I didn't. Um, and then by the time we got to the end of the series, uh, A, it didn't look like that movie was going to happen, and B, I didn't care because what were they going to do? Fire me? And you know, again, that's that's me being a little bit angry. Um, and they they certain people had made my life so difficult on that show. 
that uh, I just decided ah, I'm going to do what, whatever the hell I want. So the big reveal was that um, uh, Electro uh, was the uh, the villain in that Six Forgotten Warriors arc, which I thought was pretty cool. Actually, I enjoy watching that arc. Um, but uh, and you know, then people say, "Oh, it's not the real Electro, man. You you suck." Well, the reality is, um, either you got that or you got no Electro in my series, uh, because. You know, I stuck that in at the end. It was the last opportunity to have that villain appear and have it be at all credible. Um, and I like Electro. I thought Electro was pretty cool. I wasn't all that excited about Sandman because I knew that I could do everything that I could do with Sandman with Hydro Man. Mm, it's the same same villain. So, you know, again, the people, oh, you didn't have any Sandman. Well, tough. You know, we, we did really everything we would have done Um uh, with the Hydro Man, and I love the Hydro Man stuff. I thought that Rob Paulson, whom you all know as Pinky from Pinky and the Brain, uh, Rob did a wonderful job as uh, as Maury, um, and um, I love that. I love everything we did with Hydro Man. So you know, we we really couldn't have done anything better with Sandman, uh, and I don't. I didn't miss him. The other, you know, people are always sort of like, oh, "It's too bad you didn't have the Hulk." Well, there are two reasons why we didn't have the Hulk. The first was that um, there was some talk of doing a separate Hulk show. And so kind of the network wasn't feeling like they wanted to promote a character that was going to end up on some other network. But the other reason we didn't do the Hulk was I've never been a huge fan of the Hulk. I like the Hulk. I don't hate the Hulk. But dramatically, I really didn't understand how I was going to use the Hulk in my show in a way that would enhance the show other than simply being gratuitous. You know, when, when I put the X-Men in the show, that worked because there was a reason for them to be there. And same with the Fantastic Four. But the Hulk, I just couldn't really see where that was going to benefit the show in any, you know, way, shape, or form. So that's... Uh, those are, those are the ones... Um, I recently advertised on the Facebook page that there was a Ghost Rider crossover. I wrote the outline. Um, it was going to be a good episode. Uh, but the network, again, Avi at the time was talking about doing a Ghost Rider cartoon show that might end up on UPN. And the network guy decided in a fit of pique that he did not want to do a story that would involve a character that was going to end up on another network. And I was really angry when that outline got thrown out. So um, anybody who donates to War of the Rocket Men is going to get a copy of that outline uh, as part of the, the package of stuff that donors get because uh, that's the one that got away as far as I was concerned. But listen, I was very lucky. I got to do, I got to bring Doctor Strange to life perfectly, and I love that episode. And I got to use the X-Men uh, and that episode was fun. And I got to do a lot of really wonderful things. So I, I don't ever mean to give the impression that I'm complaining about anything. No, for sure. Um, another li- listener wanted to ask uh, how you felt about the overall portrayal of Venom on the show. I loved it. I loved it. I think that uh, Hank Azaria uh, did a wonderful job. I remember him blowing out his voice doing Venom because Tony Pastor, our director, had him do a lot of takes and he had no voice left by the time he was done. Um, I thought we did a great job with Venom. That first episode, the first Venom episode, was we obviously got the uh, the movie animation unit at Tokyo Movie Shinsha animated that one, and the animation is flawless. 
that shuttlecraft crashing on the bridge, you see every little cable of the bridge snap and every little car, you know, gets shoved over. I love that opening. Um, the subsequent episodes weren't as well animated, but they were, I think the scripts were really good. Um, and it was, I think we did a great job with a high pressure thing. You know, it would, again, um, animating Venom, Venom was the most important thing in the Spider-Man universe at that moment. The most important thing, maybe even more important than Spider-Man at that moment. And, uh, you know, again, it was just, everybody was on top of it. And it's very hard to get anything good out of a situation where everybody is just crawling all over you. We, we had a lot of different approaches. Um, at one point I was going to do Venom as the very first episode and actually the network guy argued against that and he was right. Um, he said, you know, you got to build the Venom. And I, I said, well, you're right. When you're right, you're right. So, um, let me say across the board, cause you know, I can, when I'm, bitching and complaining about things, I can make it sound like everybody was an idiot, which isn't true. Everybody involved in Spider-Man was actually quite dedicated to making it the best show ever. The network guy was, um, the uh, Avi was, uh, Avi was definitely very, very much wanting the show to be great. Stan, of course, was. Um, and I, I wanted it. Um and Bob Richardson wanted it to be a good show. We all wanted it to be a good show. So everyone contributed. Everyone you know, brought something to the table. Stan was very involved in the show in the first season. I, I, I commented on this on Facebook recently that I can still pluck out the lines where you know, I'd write something and Stan say, no, cross it out and put in his line. And, you know, and he was right. Um, Stan is really quite brilliant when it comes to that. So um, the first 13 especially, everybody's input was pretty much equal. Um, and there was a mandate to do a great show. So, you know, when the network guy, who could be a royal pain in the ass most of the time, but when he said, you know, don't do Venom first, that was right. He was right. And... Um, uh, and when people are right, it, it benefits the project. Uh, I think that my um, some of my bitterness comes more from all the politicking and and that end of things, which is which is completely irrelevant now. Um, but at the time, it did affect how I approached certain things. So Venom, Venom really, I think everybody put their best foot forward on Venom. Uh, there were a lot of writers involved in that very first script. I think. It was a huge, long list of them at, at, at one point on that first draft. Um, I, of course, had a lot of influence on the story and then also did the final rewrite. So, um, you know, that's what showrunners do. But there was a lot of input on that story, and um, I love it. I think the Venom thing, and, you know, I always tell this story that the first, we were only going to do the first and third episode, what ended up being the first and third episode. And then there was a lot of, um, I think, a, a number of fans. We didn't have the internet back then, but we had bulletin boards. And, you know, you, you'd hear a little bit from the fans what they wanted. And some people would ask me, are you going to do the black suit? And I thought, well, why don't we do the black suit? Let's just, let's just stick, um, you know, uh, a black suit episode in the middle. 
of the two episodes that we've already got planned. So even though those two were being written or maybe were even in production, I went back and I argued that we should do the middle episode with the black suit, and it would work out really well. And uh, and not you know not everyone agreed. I mean, usually the if I suggested anything, the first response was no, because <laughs> that's that, that was you know that was the climate back in those days. No, you're a fool. Get out of our faces. We hate you. You're fired. But uh, I, I managed to convince them to do the, uh, the the middle episode, which I think delighted a lot of fans. My job was to was to get the show to be what the fans wanted it to be. Um, and, and I took that fairly seriously. So, you know, that was that was the way it goes. Now, a lot of people, when I do these interviews, people say, well, you're a fool of yourself. You know, it's always I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. Well, first of all, I did do a lot of stuff. Um, so there's, you know, if you're going to, if one is going to interview me, it's going to be a lot of I, 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 because that's what showrunners do. Um, but the other thing is, you're really, when you're running a show, you're really at the mercy of, of everybody, you know, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. First of all, on Spider-Man, every other day I was going to be fired. I remember I had one writer come into my office and he said, uh, "Yeah, well, I'd love to work on your show, but I've heard that you're fired." You know, I said, "Well, look around you. Does it look like I'm fired?" So shut up and write the script. Um, so that was part of it. And then the other part is even writers get you into situations when you know they say they're going to deliver and then they don't deliver on time. Um, or they deliver on time and it's absolute garbage, which happened to me with Mysterio. Uh, and that writer is not listed in the credits, so you know I'm, I'm, it will not besmirch that person's uh, reputation. But that's what happened to me on Mysterio. Somebody handed me, somebody wasted a week, handed me a pile of crap, and I literally had to rewrite the first draft because I had a table read the next day and I had, there was, you know, the political atmosphere was very tense and people wanting to get me fired. So I couldn't go in the next day and say, I don't have a script for you guys. Because uh, then certain people would go, aha, I told you he was incompetent. So um, I literally had to rewrite uh, Mysterio from scratch uh, overnight. And, I, you know, it still pains me to look at that episode, even though it's a perfectly good episode and it looks perfectly normal because, of course, we did many rewrites after that. But I remember the, the agony of starting at, you know, at getting a script at, you know, 3 o'clock that afternoon and starting at, you know, 4 p.m. Or, or maybe 7 p.m. when I got home and being up all night writing that script. Um, so it's it's not a... It's not a glamorous position, and I never mean to make it sound like, oh my God, I'm just the most wonderful thing on the planet. Most of the time, um, you're just reviled and hated, and everybody wants to kill you. And for 20 years, I didn't talk about working on this show, because actually it was my least favorite thing to talk about. Uh, now people are you know, asking me about it, and I'm also out there running, running around raising money for War of the Rocket Men. So um, I'm, I'm willing to talk about it, but it's not like it's a it's a an ego fest here. Mm-hmm. Um, a listener question was: Was there ever any toy company input or pressure on what characters or elements to include in the show? Always from day one. Um, you know, uh, do Spider Slayers? We have a Spider Spider Slayers toy. Okay, we'll do Spider Slayers. Um, don't do Madam Web because we can't sell a toy. You know, the famous quote from Avi, I can't make a toy out of an old broad. Uh, <laughs> that's one of my proudest 
hardest things is my my Madam Web toy because <clears throat> when I you know when I made Madam Web a character in the show, um, he he was not happy about that. That was not something that he was happy about. But the toy exists, and I'm proud of it. Blade was another uh, character that uh, um, got turned into a toy as a result of me, you know, plucking him from obscurity. Um, the uh, yeah, I mean, the toy thing. It, the whole show was a toy commercial. That was the whole show. And you know, if I hadn't been there, it would have been even more obvious. There was, you know, w- when they finally got rid of me. I mean, when when I did my sixty-five episodes and they booted me out the door. Then a whole bunch of the same people turned around, and you know, Avi and, and whatnot turned around and did Spider-Man Unlimited. And that was the show that you get without me. Hmm. You know, end of story. It, it's just a giant toy commercial. And our show was a giant toy commercial, but I was there and a number of other people were there. And I think Avi's intentions were certainly uh, noble in both cases, both ours and Spider-Man Unlimited, but... Um, you know, he, he, the goal was to sell toys, period. And, um, uh, yes, you know, so toy design, our guys would design things that would then go to toy designers or toy designers would design things that would then come to me. Part of the reason that I came up with the multiverse, the spider verse at the end was that there were all these goofy Spider-Man toys, like armored Spider-Man. You know, we always used to, <laughs> we always used to do these, uh, all of us writers used to do these in Avi's accent, you know, uh, Spider-Man, Ahmed Spider-Man, you know. <laughs> but, but there were there were all these goofy Spider-Man toys that were coming out, you know. Uh, Tickle Me Spider-Man, you know, Playboy Bunny Spider-Man, you know. <laughs> and, and we, I just decided to maintain the integrity of the whole effort. Let me see how many of these guys I can put in this, this Spider-Verse so that at least they're legitimate, you know, because I'd walk through the toy aisles and I'd see armored Spider-Man and I'd think, well, what the hell is that? There was one alien Spider-Man that I could not even wrap my head around. There was, you know, I couldn't even put that in a story because I didn't know what the hell that was. Um, Six-armed Spider-Man, you know, I mean, a lot of these things were coming out as toys and I'd look at these toys and I'd think, well, can I use that? Um... And so at the end, when I had all these different Spider-Men, I worked them all. I worked a lot of these toys that I had seen on the shelves into that just to give them a bit of legitimacy. But make no mistake about it. It was made clear to me, you know, very early on that a a large part of what the show was about was to sell toys. And that's okay. You know, I'm not complaining about it because the reality is if there hadn't been the toy sales angle, then they wouldn't have done the series, period. Because that's you know you make a series and it's a it's a financial loss initially. Um, you don't recoup off of a series until it goes into syndication. And quite frankly, the company that made um, Spider-Man Marvel Films Animation was a division of New World, and New World went out of business. And I'm sure that Spider-Man might have had I'm not sure, but I would guess that Spider-Man had something to do with that. You know, this is a company that. that you know, made this animated show, um, and it was kind of just a loss leader for the toys. You know, it was sort of like, well, we're a big toy commercial, but New Line doesn't get anything back on the toys. That all that all goes to Toy Biz. So um, I, I don't, 
you know, I don't know for a fact what went wrong at New Line, but I would guess that Spider-Man certainly didn't help. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the reality is you do whatever you need to do and you, you go along with whatever you need to go along with in order to get the show on the air. And then when the show's on the air, then you get creative. You do, you do what you need to do to make it good. But, you know, if toys are a part of that, then so be it. Toys are a part of that. Not a bad thing. Uh, I wanted to ask a, a personal. One of my personal favorite episodes was your adaptation of the night Gwen Stacy died, because um, I've always just thought it, it was uh, incredibly well acted. First of all, by uh, Christopher Daniel Barnes, like he really sells it. Um, yeah. What was it like, kind of putting together that script and and you know adapting such a an important story and seminal story? It was a dream of mine. You know, when I read the comics years ago, I thought, wouldn't it be great someday if somebody took these comics, these particular comics, and brought them to life on the screen. And um, so, you know, we're talking, I'm in high school thinking this, so we're talking late 1960s. And to be the person that would actually get to do it was a fulfillment of a dream. Um, So Turning Point was on my mind probably from the moment I took the job. I thought one day I'm going to bring Turning Point to life. Exactly as written. Um, now, you know, obviously, I didn't do Gwen Stacy, um, and, you know, it was Felicia Hardy and Mary Jane in the show. But everything else is exactly, I mean, literally, I remember pulling out the comic book and going through it and going, okay, we're going to do this, 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 this. I mean, even that handshake where, where they're shaking hands, Peter's shaking hands with Norman Osborn, and they both realize who they are, and they're squeezing each other's hands with superpowers. Um, you know, I, I love that moment. I remember being blown away by it when I was a kid, and I was absolutely determined to do Turning Point. So the reason Turning Point turned out so well was I wanted it to be one of the best episodes. Um, obviously, we didn't do Death, and, you know, because I didn't choose Gwen Stacy... That was a decision I had to make in a hurry at the very beginning of the show. That's the other thing. You know, people think that, you know, you just get to go home and go, la dee what am I going to do? Oh, I, you know, should I do Gwen Stacy or should I not do Gwen Stacy? Let me, let me think about that over a glass of champagne. It doesn't work that way. You know, you, got, you, you go to work every day and people are trying to get you fired and people are yelling and having all kinds of problems and your network guy is weaseling around trying to create more trouble for you. And, you know, then you go home and you go, oh, God, i got to figure out the rest of the series. And uh, we can't kill Gwen Stacy. And so should I do her? And uh, that won't be, you know, that won't be true to Spider-Man. Uh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of done in a hurry, you know, and you're done. It's done under a lot of duress. But my thinking was we can't kill her. And I certainly didn't know about, you know, that I was going to work in uh, Jonathan Owen's technology, the spots technology and and, and all that, the dimensional, you know, none of that had been invented yet in my head. So um, it was pretty simple. It was like, well, I can't kill her on the bridge. So let me just create a Gwen Stacy substitute. Okay, now, many, many um, months later, I've got the stories with Jonathan Owen's technology. I think his name was Jonathan Owen, the uh, the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got the dimensional transporter. Uh, I've got Felicia Hardy established. I've got Mary Jane established. And I and I go well now. I can do Turning Point because now I can understand how to get how to make Peter think that she's died without actually killing her. So 
you know, that's months later all that's figured out. And that's what happens when you have time. But when you're when in the beginning you're going, oh, you know, and people are yelling at you and, and, and it's just craziness. So you just you make a spot decision. Um, and, and again, now, you know, you get on, on the boards and people go, oh, why did you do Gwen Stacy? You suck. Well, you know, it, it's I wish I could bring you back in time and, and have you be a part of of, uh, of that moment. And you'll understand you know, why that decision was made. I still think it was the right decision, because when I go to these conventions and I see all kinds of young women dressed as the black cat, you know, my show started that the black cat was absolutely not on anyone's radar prior to my show being on the air. So, um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't have done The Black Cat with Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy was actually, she was a gorgeous character. We all were in love with her, but she really wasn't all that exciting. Um, so, you know, it, it, uh, when, I, when I see the popularity of The Black Cat, that all starts with my show. And, I'm, and I think that I made the right decision there. When you, I, mean, I guess you kind of answered this, but I mean, did you have a, a kernel in your mind when you started using Felicia that you would transform her into Blackout at some point, or was that so far down the, the pike no. that it just wasn't part of the thought process? No, 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 it was definitely part of the thought process. That was that was why I chose her. When I was going through the comic books and I was plucking out these obscure characters like Deborah Whitman and whatnot, um, Deborah Whitman was chosen from Night of the Lizard because I could not, I had no idea what I was going to do with Peter's romantic life. And I didn't want to start out immediately with Mary Jane because uh, then I wouldn't get to do Face It, Tiger, You Just Hit the Jackpot. And I certainly couldn't work that into the first episode. So, you know, I just thought, yeah, let me just pluck a girl character out of this, out of these comic books that's completely irrelevant. And then I don't have to commit to anything. And I found Deborah. And I thought, okay, she'll be perfect. She's she's a complete and total non-entity in the Spider-Man universe, and I can do whatever I want with her. And I can put her in this pilot, and they're going to be a little bit of a, you know, when she looks at him and says, oh, Peter, that was quite brave. You know, there's going to be a little hint of romance without scaring anyone, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm, I have not committed anything to anything. And so that's where Deborah came from. Felicia, when I decided upon Felicia, um, I knew that I could give her a personality of my own because she had none in the comic books. And then I knew that she would turn into the black cat. And I thought, well, that'll be kind of cool. You know, if, if I get that far, if I can stay on this show long enough, um, that'll be kind of cool to have this character turn into a superhero herself. You know, that gives me some possibilities. So, yeah, that was definitely a huge part. But when you look at the black cat in the comic books, I mean, how stupid is, is her power? She can cause bad luck. <laughs> it's it's not exactly the, the best one that I ever came up with, no. No one even remembers that now. You know, it's sort of like, oh, she's badass and she's sexy and oh, we love the black cat. No one remembers what her power was. Hey, if you chase her, you'll slip and fall. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't get any dumber than that. So, you know, that's what I say when when, going back to our earlier discussion about um, uh, when you're saddled with all this really badly written mythology. uh, And listen, I'm sure those guys were under deadline pressure, too. You know, I mean. That's, the reality is you can't ever take any of this seriously, even the stuff that I've done, you know, because people write under deadline pressure. They write under all kinds of circumstances. They write under toy pressure, you know. Um, that's the way this all works. And if you're going to make it holy scripture, then you're just nuts. <laughs> 
So well, anyway, as a kid, I remember like I. I hadn't read a lot of Spider-Man comics, but I was reading, I was watching your show, and so it's interesting that you, you, you as you said, you kind of plucked Deborah Whitman out of obscurity. Um, I had no idea that she was such an obscure character when I was watching your show, and I was like, oh, Deborah Whitman, of course. And then you go to the comics, and she's not around at all. <laughs> yeah, she's just completely not there. Um, uh, what I love is when uh, I look at things that I plucked out of obscurity, like the Black Cat, and I watch how... Um, people who are now making uh, gigantic salaries at Marvel, uh, having built their reputations <laughs> on just simply replicating what I did on the show, um, you know, now all of a sudden the Black Cat is this big popular character. When we made her the character that she became, um, you know, that, that's kind of amusing to me at this particular point. Uh, I I think that, and this is the other thing that I think uh, doesn't really get enough attention our show really introduced an entire generation not only to spider-man and his world but to marvel comics and also to superheroes you know such was the timing that these seminal shows x-men and spider-man and batman um you know we really we really introduced an entire generation to 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 all of these characters and it's not a small accomplishment. It's not a small thing. It's really a big thing, you know. And and the fact that, uh, and I am going to get on the soapbox a little bit. The fact that when they made movies of these characters, you know, a rarely would I pick up a magazine and they'd be talking about, oh, they're going to make Batman or they're going to make this or that. You know, rarely would they discuss the animated shows. Like we were just sort of some little trivial thing that happened off to the side, um, and they, you know, they go interview the, they would interview these comic book guys, like they did something. <laughs> <laughs> and in point of fact, um, you know, um, that wave of '90s animation is far more influential to the generation that ended up embracing comic books than the comic books that were coming out in that era. Um, so, uh, you know, I get a little miffed when a new Spider-Man movie comes out and I don't get interviewed, you know, whereas they interview some comic book guy. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, I kind of had more to do with why there's a, now a multi-million dollar Spider-Man franchise than that guy did. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, I, I sat, excuse me, I banged my desk. I sat and watched uh, Batman vs. Superman. I was sitting with Alan Burnett and Paul Dini. Those guys have probably had more to do with why those characters are up there on the big screen battling one another, you know, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Those guys have probably had, you know, more as much or more to do with, uh, with why those characters are popular than the comic book writers that were writing during the same era, you know, the 90s. Um, you know, obviously, somebody like Jeff Jones is hugely, uh, is a huge part of why these characters are popular today. But, you know, Danny and Burnett, I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's huge, influ huge influence. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I mean, I'm basically the generation you're talking about. I was born in 83, so I was, you know, I was, I was 10 in 93, so around the time that Batman and X-Men and then your show were happening, I was in the kind of that prime demographic, and it really helped solidify my future love of comics. So I'm definitely yeah. a product of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, well, and that's, that's um, I think that the credit, 
to be given. You know, the Leewalds, Julia and Eric Leewald, get a huge amount of credit for X-Men. You know, let me just let me just name the roster. You know, you've got Julia and Eric Leewald, X-Men. You've got me, Spider-Man. You've got Deanie, Burnett, obviously Bruce Timm uh, over on the Batman side. Um, and, and the many writers who contributed to all of this, my staff, Stan Berkowitz, Mark Hoffmeyer, uh, Ernie Altbacker, uh, Jim Krieg. You know, Jim is out there doing all kinds of amazing writing right now. So, you know, to, to, to 10, 20 years from now, there'll be a whole generation that's raised on his stuff. I mean, we are at the forefront of why these characters are now the multi-million dollar properties that they are right at this moment. And, um, again, I get really annoyed when I pick up a comic book, a Marvel comic book, and they're talking to some comic book writer like he knows something. Uh, it's it's just uh, it's a little infuriating to me. So, anyway. Well, speaking of comics, you're writing an upcoming comic for DC. I sure am. Now, here I am ranting and raving about comic book writers, and <laughs> now all of a sudden I am one. How did that come um, about? How did that come about? Um... Let's see. The I had originally been approached to write. <laughs> this is the weird thing. Since I left Spider-Man, I have not been approached by Marvel to do a single effing thing. <laughs> okay, so it's like you know, people see people identify me with Marvel. I have not had anything to do with Marvel in over twenty years. Oddly enough, however, I've had much more to do with DC and Warner Brothers um, than uh, during that 20-year period than, it, than any other uh, comic book company. Um, I was a story editor on Static Shock for two seasons. I got nominated for an Emmy for one of those seasons, so I was happy to be working with Dennis Cowan, uh, who's a great guy, and uh, Dwayne McDuffie, uh, the legendary Dwayne McDuffie. Um, and obviously I worked with Alan on Static Shock, so I have always enjoyed working with Alan. Um, Paul Dini had the office next to me. So, you know, my world has been more DC over the last few years. Uh, I've most recently for Jim. Jim is now one of the producers with Alan on uh, this new Justice League Adventures that's coming out. And I wrote one of those. Um, uh, I co-wrote with my partner, Rebecca Kaminsky. Um, so... Um, you know, my world has been more DC, strangely enough. And uh, some years ago, when I was in the middle of doing a, a, a film project that I uh, was producing and writing and directing, um, I got a call from Dan DiDio. Dan's been a friend of mine for a very long time. About 16 years I've known Dan. And he said, uh, hey, how would you like to write a comic book? And I said, well, yeah, that'd be great. Uh you know, I'm in the middle of this film project, but sure, let's talk about it. And and so <clears throat> we talked about it, um, but he gave me an editor that I don't think really wanted to work with me. Oh. By by virtue of the fact that I could never get this guy to to um, <laughs> to meet with me, uh, or or even really have much of a conversation, uh, any kind of real long conversation on the phone. So because I was in the middle of the film project, um, I just you know I thought, okay, well that's that. Uh, and I and I was more ex, you know, interested at that particular time in getting my film project done. I got the film done. Um, I would continue to run into Dan at comic conventions and stuff like that. And then um, recently, uh, you know, I got another 
call out of the clear blue. This time from Dan Evans, who's um, a good friend, and uh, he is uh, VP. He just got elevated to VP in charge of all kinds of creative stuff. I think that's his official title, VP in charge of all kinds of creative stuff. <laughs> uh, and so he's doing a lot of really cool things. And I had just seen Dio at uh, one of the cons, and we had said, oh, we got to get together and, and have lunch. Um, and so uh, Dan uh, Evans called me up and he said, uh, or he contacted me, and he said, uh, you know, are you busy right now? And I said, no, actually, I'm not really all that busy. Um, and, and he put my name into the hat, I guess, for doing this. Literally within two days, I was over at D.C. D.C. did me the wonderful favor of moving from New York, where they'd been for, what, a century or however long. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they moved to... Los Angeles, five minutes away from where I live. <laughs> so, so I literally, I can roll out of bed and, and be at D.C. in a half an hour. Uh, and uh, uh, so, any, you know, two days after I got the, the uh, invite from uh, Dan Evans, I was over there meeting with Jeff Johns, whom I love. I worship this guy. I think he's brilliant and amazing, and I am excited to be in the room with Jeff. Um and uh, I'm, I'm working with uh, some wonderful editors led by Brian Cunningham. Um, and this time, these guys meet with me, and I enjoy meeting with them. And I, I love our conversations. I, just, I was just there yesterday morning uh, and had a meeting. And um, it was great. You know, the synergy was there. The, the good feelings were there. Dan DiDio popped in and said, yeah, see, I knew we were going to get you over here sooner or later. Um, and uh, I'm loving it. It's it's wonderful. I'm being welcomed with open arms, and they've given me a character who is extraordinarily important to them. I mean, actually, when I went over there, I thought, oh, well, okay, they got this thing that they're doing, and they need somebody, and so, you know, I'll go over, and, and this will be a nice little thing. And then they go, well, here's this character, Cyborg, and he's going to be in the Justice League, and he's going to be where he's got his own movie coming out in, you know, two years, and and it was like Spider-Man all over again. It was like, whoa, okay, well, this is this is kind of important. Um, and they're looking at me like, well, yeah, that's why you're here, you know. And and so um, I'm in heaven doing this this particular job. I'm I'm I love these guys, and uh, I want to uh, do this forever. This is really great fun. How have you had to adapt? Like, obviously, you're used to writing for animation. How is it adapt, adapting your style to fit a comic book and actually write a comic book script? Well, the guys were helping me with this. Uh, I'm a quick learner, so you know I get I get the basics of the format. Um, storytelling is storytelling, so that part of things I'm I'm pretty good at. There are a lot of things in life that I'm not good at. For all the people who complain that I go I I I me me me, uh, let me assure you there are many many things in life that I am not good at. But uh, I'm I'm good at coming up with stories and writing characters. And um, uh, so, you know, story, a good story is a good story, and storytelling is storytelling. So that part of things I've got covered. The rest of it is just formatting. You know, don't do a splash page here, do it there. Don't end a page this way. You can't have more than so many panels and, and that kind of thing. And that's just a little bit of a kind of a, like a Chinese puzzle that you put together. And I think I've, I'm learning that, and I have learned that pretty effectively um so it's a it's a seamless transition what i do like is that um and perhaps i used to envy this a little bit of comic book writers 
is that you do have much more creative freedom. Um, I got lucky with Spider-Man because it was a combination of deadline pressure and you know me developing a little bit of an fu attitude. Um, uh, I seized a lot of creative control on Spider-Man. I just said, "Well, I'm just going to do it," you know, and and so. Um, I did end up with a lot of creative control on Spider-Man, not because anybody thought that I deserved it, uh, but just because I kind of got lucky and I and I took it. Um, but normally in television, you don't get a lot of creative control. There, everything's done by committee. I think especially these days now, uh, and um, and so uh, being a showrunner in animation is not always the godly position that <laughs> that, that that you would like for it to be. Um, in comic books, it's different. You really, you know, there is a great deal more respect for the creator, um, and I'm enjoying the creative freedom. Now, you don't have total freedom, but you do have a great more, a great deal more freedom, and and you, it's just more relaxed. And quite honestly, I feel like I'm dealing with nicer people. You know, network network people are um, deranged most of the time. <laughs> they're just a little, a little deranged, you know, and and. You know, movie and TV people can be just a little nutty, um, but dealing with comic book people, I feel like I'm dealing with normal people, whatever that means. I, I feel like I'm dealing with people who've got their egos in check and they're really there to help you, you know, facilitate your story. And uh, I'm I'm very impressed with uh, the whole DC situation. So um, uh, yeah, thank you, DC, for giving me this wonderful opportunity. And uh, Marvel, what the hell's wrong with you? Anyway, there you go. <laughs> what, what has it been like kind of getting the – like have you started getting pages back from the artists and kind of seeing it all laid out? Oh, man, that is the best part. It's like you write the stuff. Well, you know, that's true in animation too. You write the stuff and then you watch it and you go, holy crap, look what I did. You know, this is just amazing. So – I it's just faster <laughs> in, in comics. You know, I'm, I'm looking now at artwork based on something I wrote uh, just a couple of months ago. And it's just, uh, there, there's an artist, this artist, Paul Pelletier, is doing uh, this, my first issue of, uh, of Cyborg. And I get a page in every couple of days, uh, or at least the pencils are coming in and now the inks just started coming and I've got the first four pages of inks and man this thing looks, looks like a movie it's just epic um, you know I, I jokingly said in one of my emails recently that if I'd known that he was going to be this good I would have written only about like four pages of script and just let the let, let the pictures carry it that's what I'm going to do from now on <laughs> and my scripts are only going to be about four pages long um, no, it's great. This is epic. It's, uh, you know, anybody who doesn't pick up this comic book, you're, you're really missing out. I guess the uh, numbers on the pre-existing Cyborg comic book have been thin, but let me let me announce to everyone that that, has, that is going to turn around because um, this comic is going to be spectacular. I'm going to make it spectacular. So there you go. There's, there's me doing the I, 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 me, me, me thing. But... Uh, <laughs> It's but a, it's true. It's allowed. Yeah, it's going to be a great comic book. The, the, the artwork is epic. Now, I think you, uh, I think they also announced that uh, Will Conrad is going to be working on the book with you as well. Great. <laughs> news to you? Okay. That's news to me. Um, 
Yeah, it's happening. It's all happening so quickly. I'm only, you know, again, just as I did on Spider-Man the Animated Series, <clears throat> and this is important for me to say, um, I had nothing whatsoever on Spider-Man to do with the artwork or the look of the show. That's all Bob Richardson. Bob is an Emmy award-winning producer. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you're going to have anyone do great animation and produce a great show, it's going to be Bob. Um, it takes him forever to complete a sentence. He's the slowest talking human being on the planet, but uh, he does really great work. I had nothing whatsoever to do with the look of the show, the animation, anything. I was my department was story. I was in charge of that, uh, and that was my job. Um, so, to all the artists who worked on Spider-Man, some of whom are actually still my friends: Del Barris, Jim Janes, Bill Reiling. Um, some of them have dropped off the map. Brilliant guy named. Vladimir Sasboyevich, I don't know where he's gone, but he did amazing work. Um, I'm sure there are other artists that I, that, whom I know that I'm not thinking of at the moment, but they did a wonderful job, and I'm extraordinarily thankful to them for the work that they did. So now we go to comic books, and here we are. Again, I'm just concentrating right now on getting the stories down. Uh, I will, I'm sure, get to know these artists as time goes by. Uh, you know, Mr. Pelletier is doing an amazing job. Um, and uh, I suspect that whoever they've chosen to uh, do the, you know, every other issue is going to be equally as spectacular. Now, so you, you kind of answered this question, but it's always been something that's rattled around in my mind. And you said you had not, nothing really to do with the visual look of the Spider-Man animated series. So I, my only question was, so you weren't part of the decision to change Peter's uh, wardrobe from season one to season two? No, I had nothing to do with that. Okay. Um, I was always curious because it was it, he changes. Obviously, he wears that I guess that weird sweater I guess for the first yeah. season, and then after that, he wears I guess the red shirt with another shirt on top. And I was just yeah. always curious what the design change was for. I have no idea, and I'm not even sure I really noticed it when it happened. Um, I think that there was always something a little weird about a guy who has web shooters strapped to his arms, <clears throat> who's, who who then goes around in a short sleeve shirt. <laughs> You know, I hadn't even thought about that, which is sad. Yeah. Most people don't. Most people don't. Uh, somebody asked me years ago at a comic book convention, and, and it caught me by surprise. Literally when the show was on the air, so it's 20 years ago. And I kind of blew him off. Um, uh, and I've always felt guilty about that because he actually raised a really good point. I just didn't like his attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't feel like putting up with it. Um, it was one of our appearances at the San Diego Comic Con, I think. And some guy said, oh, come, he's, he's got web shooters, eh? And I said, uh, essentially, I sort of went, uh, you know, that's because he, he's a scientist or something. And, and I got out of it. Bob, Bob always used to offer up this explanation that he would fold down his web shooters from his short sleeves and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think that might have had something to do with it. Um, but I don't know. You know, I mean, everything was always kind of in flux and, and things, things were changing on the show. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I had, again, I had nothing whatsoever to do with the art. And the other thing people ask me about is the casting. The initial casting of the show I had nothing to do with. As time went by, I would recommend people whom I wanted to meet. So, <laughs> so being a Trekkie, um, I'd say, yeah, why don't you get, you know, Nichelle Nichols for this or George Takei or, you know, Major Barrett Roddenberry. And that's how I met them. Um, and Majel and I ultimately became really close friends. But I, that was just me. You know, I was like, who do I want to meet? Who do I want to meet? You know, 
Patrick McGowan still is. I love everything he's done, and uh, and not just the Prisoner. I, the Prisoner I actually consider uh, you know interesting, but not his best work. Um, but um, I wanted him to be the Beyonder, and the closest I got was a phone conversation with him, which made me so nervous. Um, but I, I actually had a nice phone conversation with him, and he, he couldn't do it because he was in the middle of writing the, a prisoner movie. I'd love to, to find that script, or I wish somebody had that script. I'd love to, to hear what his thoughts would have been for a prisoner movie. Um, but he said, you know, I can't do it because I'm writing a prisoner movie. You know, and I said, well, that's that's wonderful. You know, when's that movie coming out? You know, and and he paid me the greatest compliment. He said, you got a great voice. I like your voice. You got a great voice. And I, I, I cherish that to this day, uh, my conversation with McGowan. But um, but other than that, no, I had no no control over casting whatsoever, and I was not responsible for cra- uh, casting Chris Barnes, um, which was the greatest gift that we could have ever gotten because Chris Chris is brilliant. The whole cast was great. I mean, Saratoga Valentine, Jennifer Hale, Ed Asner, who has since become a good friend. Um, they're all good. they're all my friends. In fact. You know, the best part of doing a show is uh, being in the recording studio. And all the actors are still my friends, which is why I, I have gotten them to do War of the Rocket Men. So let's talk about War of the Rocket Men. So where did this kind of concept first come from? We did a, a cast reunion, 20 years, uh, 20, 20 anniversary, 20 year anniversary cast reunion at Stanley's Kamikaze Expo about a year and a half ago. And we were all in the room together for the first time in 20 years. We all know each other, so it's not like we hadn't seen each other, but only individually. This is the first time we were together in a room, and the vibe was magic. I mean, all of these people have remained my friends. That's how I was able to get them to this thing. Um, We were just, we had a great time, and we did a panel, and the panel is on YouTube if you want to find it. Uh, and, And everybody talked about their role, and I moderated it. And uh, I hadn't planned on moderating it, but somehow my, my friend Pat Jankowitz, who was supposed to moderate it, didn't show up, <laughs> much to his chagrin. I think he, he still weeps about that late at night, um, but he got caught up in something. Anyway, uh, we had a great panel. It was great. It was a sellout house. The place was packed. They had to turn people away. And uh, when it was all over, I turned to them and I said, well, look, why don't we all work again? And they, and they said, well, you th- you're a thinker-upper of ideas, so think up an idea. Well, <clears throat> I have always loved Republic serials, and I have always loved the Rocket Man character. I'm like Dave Stevens. You know, Dave Stevens loved Republic serials and the Rocket Man character. And so he created the Rocketeer, and look what happened to that. So um, I thought, well, I'm going to create my own Rocket Man character, and it's going to be pretty much the guy who was in the serial, um, but different. And, uh, and I'll create a, a cast of characters and a backstory and an adventure, and it's going to be great. The same thing I did with Spider-Man, really. You know, it's you, you get a character and you go, okay, now what am I going to do with him? Uh, and all of my voices are going to be done by these wonderful people. So Chris Barnes, the voice of Spider-Man, is going to be the voice of my lead character. And Saratoga Valentine is going to be... Um, the uh, She's actually the leader of the Rocket Men. The leader of the Rocket Men is a woman. So this is all done uh, in the 1940s during World War II. Um, there is a battle being waged in the skies above America. 
Um, Hitler is trying to take over America by using these rocket men and subterfuge and um, sabotage. And we have our own rocket people who are trying to win this kind of secret war, if I may use that term, um, that's going on, uh, you know, uh, quietly. Um, and it's very Republic serial and very sci-fi. Some people even feel that it's a bit steampunk. Uh, I don't. I think it's very much, uh, you know, sci-fi 1950s, um, and it's drawn in that style. I've got these amazing artists, Frank Rao, who does wonderful period stuff, um, Des Taylor, who has, since I commissioned him to do some artwork for me, already was kind of a superstar on the internet, but now he's an actual TV star. He's hosting a TV show in England. He's, he's based in London. <clears throat> and I met Des online. This is the power of online, and specifically of Facebook, because I saw his art, and I found him on Facebook, and I said, hey, I like you, and I want to do something with you. And he said, you know, hey, I, I, I like the stuff you've done, and that's great. So um, he had been scheduled to come over uh, to uh, um, the States for San Diego Comic-Con, so we arranged a little bit of a lunch off campus in a nice quiet place, and we spent a good hour getting to know one another. And, uh, you know, I, I had already hired him online. Uh, I just hired him. I commissioned him to do some artwork for War of the Rocket Man. And he, he has done some amazing artwork. So I've got these great artists. I also have a little bit of artwork from Del Barris, who was one of the key artists who did a lot of the promotional art for Spider-Man, the animated series. Um, and uh, yeah, it came together very quickly, and it's a it's a great project. So the, the coolest thing for Spider Man people, because you know Spider Man people go, well, I should care about this because not Spider Man, so it sucks. But the thing is, um, all of the uh, perks and giveaways are Spider Man related. Most of them are. Uh, so I've got you know these actual drawings that were used in the production of Spider Man. These are these are pencil drawings that were then transferred to digital and their actual animation drawings that were used. So the, the, the original pencil drawings, I'm selling those. These are being perks. Um, everyone always asks me, did Peter ever find Mary Jane? Well, there's a script that I've written called Peter Finds Mary Jane, where you will find out how Peter would have found Mary Jane. And that's one of the perks. You know, basically, look, if you, if, you, if you can only afford 25 bucks, here's what you get for 25 bucks. You get the script for Peter Finds Mary Jane, which is obviously, in and of itself, I think, really worth it. You're going to get the outline for um, the Spider-Man Ghost Rider team-up that never got made. You're going to get, and I think this is actually the best perk, you're going to get a, a virtual ticket to a um, online film festival that I'm going to put together. You're going to be able to stream all this footage that I shot of our recording sessions. I, find, I discovered that I had shot something like over three hours of recording session footage. Um, so you're going to actually get... And, and I did an interview recently with Chris Barnes, and when I, when I mentioned this, he was surprised because I hadn't even mentioned this to him. <laughs> but I, I had brought my home movie camera to a couple of our recording sessions, uh, even the one with Stan Lee at the very end. I brought my, my camera to that. And I have all this video that I'm going to put up online, and you're going to be able to stream it. And it's only going to be up for a limited amount of time. And not everyone, it's not going to be public. Um, I might even stick up a couple of uh, original.
original deliveries of, of Spider-Man episodes before we added all the sound effects and the music and edited it so you'll get to see it run even longer and it'll even have the original dialogue because a lot of times I changed the dialogue which was uh, you know something I could do because I had a lead character whose mouth was covered so um, a lot of times I would wait we'd get the film in I'd look at it and I'd say oh he shouldn't say that he should say this and I'd write a new line um, so you're going to get to see what it originally was intended the most extreme example of that is Night of the Lizard where um Mrs. Connor was going to, you know, in the middle of the fight, she's going to pick up the Neogenic Recombinator, and and I originally had Spider-Man shouting, yeah, pick it up, pick up that Neogenic Recombinator and fire it, and then I thought, when I looked at the footage, I thought, well, that's ridiculous, that makes no sense whatsoever, that the hero is telling this poor innocent woman to pick the thing up and, and save the day, uh, and I changed it, you know, so now he goes, no, don't touch it, you know, don't touch that thing. Huh. Um, I, I used to make changes like that. I mean, it got to be less and less as I got more familiar with the show. But, you know, in the pilot, you're sort of looking at things and going, wow, okay, that works, but that doesn't work. Um, and uh, and so you'll get to see the original cut of something. You know, I've got them all. And um, uh, it might be Night of the Lizard. Um, there was In Doc Ock, there was a moment in the TMS footage where there was like a long pause and you saw a light turn from from red to green and then something happened something exploded and i always i always thought that little pause before the explosion was so so wonderfully tms <laughs> you know it was just so delicate and japanese and well well observed and of course you know in our final cut it got hacked off <laughs> no time for that on saturday morning and so I, I know I have the original delivery on that, and, and that moment is preserved. You know, little things like that, little things stick in your mind. Anyway, there's going to be this online festival. It's going to be several hours of footage that you're going to get to see. And all of that comes for 25 bucks. You know, you get the, the scripts and the – oh, you get, you'll get the uh, final Bible digitally. You get the final Bible um, for War of the Rocket Men, which will have Dez's art in it and all of my – writing about what the show is all about and you know so there are more expensive perks i mean i think there's one really expensive perk where you you know you get to have dinner with me or you get to watch us record you get to come to the recording session those are expensive and i recognize that people can't afford those um <clears throat> but you know for 25 bucks you, you get a lot and anybody that doesn't at least pony up that. I don't understand why you would miss out on that opportunity. That's the price these days. That's the price of a of a graphic novel. You know, you walk into a graphic novel, you walk into a comic book store to buy a graphic novel, you know, spend like, you know, 15, 20, 25 bucks. So um, if you're a Spider-Man fan, this is... Uh, oh, and one other perk that I should mention is if you ever wanted to have Chris Barnes as Spider-Man do your phone message, that's one of the perks. Or Mary Jane Watson or Craven the Hunter or Mysterio, or the Black Cat. That's a perk. It's a pricey one. But, you know, when are you, gonna ha when are you ever going to have the opportunity for that to happen? That sounds to pretty sweet. Yeah, you know, so... Um, this, you know, we, we've done okay so far. We've, we've made uh, about ten grand, I think. Uh, which is en enough for me to certainly record everybody. And that was one of my goals, was to was to get to record everybody for War of the Rocket Men. But I also 
<clears throat> have to pay an artist because what I'm do- what I want to do at the very least is create an animatic, which is art and soundtrack combined. So um, I urge everyone to, uh, if they want to see War of the Rocket Men brought to life, and you should, because if you like '90s animation, this is '90s animation all over again. Um, and uh, if so, if you want to see it brought to life, you really should donate. Uh, you'll have all the links, I would assume, on your on your website. Uh, yeah. Okay, and then you know, if you forget, if you if you for some odd reason can't find it, it's www.waroftherocketmen, all one word, waroftherocketmen.com. So that's www.waroftherocketmen.com. Donate. Excellent. Uh, anything else you can uh, tease us for your upcoming cyborg run? Uh, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be spectacular. <laughs> um, what I can tease, let's see, uh, cyborg, it's going to be great. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm basically going to um, explore Cyborg's personal life, and there will be a lot of really colorful characters introduced with whom he can interact. Um, I I think his world, after I'm done, his world will never be the same, really. Uh, So if you're at all curious about the character or interested in the character... Um, this is, I think, a time to tune in because uh, I'm introducing a lot of new characters. Um, I'm fleshing him out more as a as a personality. Uh, I think when whenever you have a black superhero um, being written by primarily white writers, and I don't know that he's ever been written by a, a writer of color. Maybe he has. Um, but I think that there's always kind of like a, a, a kind of a hands off. It's like, well, we don't want to we don't want to do anything that's politically incorrect, and we don't want to tarnish him, and we you know, and we don't really understand him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, that's good, that's okay. Um, but I don't have that that hesitation. Being a writer of color, I, I'm not. That's not an intimidation that's hanging over me. So I'm, you know, he's he's really going to be put out there now a little bit more as a personality, <clears throat> and I think that um, these are going to be very pivotal years for this character, uh, or I should say months. Uh, these are going to be pivotal months for this character. There are going to be a lot of changes in his world, and um, yeah. And my my goal, you know, there was a little poll once on Facebook a few weeks back where someone said name your favorite black superhero and so you know everyone's all you know black pantherized at the moment because uh, that's you know a, an exciting thing that's going on and there are all these heroes listed and I don't think a single person mentioned Cyborg um, and there are reasons for that there are reasons for that and I think that Having really looked very closely at those reasons, I'm now going to um, make it so that that never happens again. You know, there can never be a poll like that and not a single mention of Cyborg. Uh, So that'll be the tease that I will leave you with. Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for spending your time with us today and talking about your career in animation as well as uh, War of the Rocket Men, Cyborg, and of course, Spider Man. Well, thank you, Adam, for having me on and letting me talk for one hour and 46 minutes uh, because I'm looking at the timer here. 
that's uh, that's way too much. So I think you should just cut everything out and only leave the part about War of the Rocket Men. How does that sound? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just a suggestion. Uh, anyway, this has been great, and thank you for doing this, and uh, thank you for allowing me to promote uh, the War of the Rocket Men. And, and uh, yeah, we'll do it again sometime soon. I hope. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Take care.